The easiest way to secure and accelerate your website is with Encapsula, protecting over 4 million sites from individual bloggers to the Fortune 50. Visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. On today's DataNuts podcast, we have the first in what we believe will be an occasional series found on the internet. Things that we've read that maybe don't make up a full show, but that we want to talk about. Today's topics include the future of ops, CockroachDB, and OpenStack growing up. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our DataNuts shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for DataNuts, spelled like astronauts in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at AC Banks, and with me is the fabulous Chris Wall, who finds Waldo every single time, and we have a special guest today, Rebecca Fitzhugh. Rebecca, would you introduce yourself to the Datanauts audience? I am a technical marketing engineer at Rubrik, and you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Fitzhugh. I'm going to let you try and sound that one out. <laughs> Wait, why do I find Waldo? What's that all about? You find Waldo every single time, man. You're just that good. That's That was a compliment to how astonishingly capable of a person you are. Okay. I just felt like I've done cooler things, so I thought maybe keeping the bar kind of low. <laughs> so, Rebecca, I have to ask if you have a sense of humor or not. And the context is if you dig around and look up Rebecca, you will see that she is uh, certified a lot, lots of letters. And so I assume that is the result of being a humorless person. Am I right or wrong? Absolutely. I pride myself on being the most humorless, boring person in the world. Awesome. <laughs> okay, good. You'll fit right in on this show because Chris and I are very serious at all times. Serious business. All right. Well, let's jump into the first story here. The, the thing I found on the internet, I follow well over 100 blogs and I don't read all of them, but, uh, but the ones that catch my eye, I, I try to read through. And, and this one by Tyler Treat on the future of ops really grabbed my attention. So his blog is bravenewgeek.com. And he posts occasionally, not very often, but when he posts, it's heavy. You got to sit and spend time to read it because it's good stuff, something he's put a lot of thought and energy into. In this post, The Future of Ops, Tyler proposes an idea called New Ops. Now, I don't know if that's original with him and his terminology or just something that's been kind of kicking around amongst the people that have been thinking about these things. But he, he brings up that term New Ops as opposed to DevOps or No Ops. He says New Ops. And I, I try to compartmentalize this into a sentence, which is, Ops enabling devs to have the control over infrastructure they need to resolve problems independently of infrastructure engineers. That's kind of the way I interpreted his pretty lengthy post about new ops. Chris, I'll just run this by you since you run around, talk to a lot of user groups and, and hang out with people that are doing a lot of this new stuff and merging dev and ops teams. Is that a, a, a trend you see or a, a reasonable thing to be considering and so on? It sounds like everyone's personal nightmare, man. The idea of devs having control over infrastructure is uh, typically what, what people push back on, what they don't want to do, because maybe you've seen it, but I've had a lot of jobs where the devs would create the flaming dumpster fire of infrastructure because they're let loose. And so I'm not saying that that's what the new ops thing's all about, but you got to start somewhere. And I think there's like those memory scars of having, you know, you go in, it's like, oh, everything's a layer two network and there's no security on anything. And what the heck? They're complaining about issues because there's no DNS set up and, you know, the list goes on and on. So I think that's certainly some scars and some memories that I am drawing when I read the article as well as when you talk about new ops being kind of that reverse flow. I'm also thinking that it still sounds conveyor belt-ish, right? The idea is workflows in both directions. You have input going and feedback loops going both directions in order to be 
part of that three-way mentality. Therefore, the flow of just dev controlling infrastructure through infrastructure as code type ideology, it seems like a piece of the puzzle, but really not the entire thing. So that's where my head's at. I guess I didn't take it as a, you know, like a, a handing over the keys to the race car. It's, well, well, maybe it is kind of like. Kind of is. Yeah, more like, but but they didn't have to build the car, I guess would be my analogy. In other words, you didn't give devs <laughs> a, a pile of metal and say, rack it and cable it. Good luck, guys. Hope it works out great. It wasn't that. It was like there were there were infrastructure teams that were getting it stood up to some baseline was my impression. But then dev had the ability to look at those systems and monitor them and interpret data and, you know, get to the root cause of things without necessarily having to involve operations engineers. So it was more of a, I don't know, more of a meshing and a blurring of the lines as opposed to, like I said, you know, throwing it over the wall and just having them figure it out now. Rebecca, did you get a chance to read the article and form an impression? Yeah, I actually read it twice on the plane. This was the article I think that stuck with me the most out of the three. And the question that I was sort of left with at the end of it, and this was just me looking back at my career so far, and it was in every environment that I've worked in, was dev a customer of ops or was ops the customer of dev? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I just kept thinking about that. And so the, the, the quote that kind of stuck with me was it was talking about what happens if something breaks at 2 a.m.? Right. And then I started remembering all of these times in my career where I would be on the op side of the house and I get called in to fix something or, or troubleshoot something that I didn't really truly have a fundamental understanding of how it was working. So I thought a lot about that. So would it be more appropriate then to call in the, the deaf person who is intimately familiar rather than the ops person? Yeah, that, that I'm going to actually read that quote because I, I pulled that out of the article as well. And uh, that quote is, if a service is throwing an out-of-memory exception at 2 a.m., does it make sense to alert the ops folks who have no insight or power to fix the problem? Or should we alert the developers who are intimately familiar with the system? And then Tyler goes on to say, the latter seems obvious, but the key is they need to be empowered to be notified of the situation, debug it, and resolve it autonomously. But just going back to you, Chris, I mean, you're... <laughs> You're making the point that it kind of sounds, you know, like a worse nightmare. Well, I'm doing that from kind of the cynical straw man perspective. You know, I'm not saying that this isn't a good idea generically, but in order to get any idea to stick, you have to sell it to the people that are going to champion it and, and cause it to trickle down into the organization. And so when I first are thinking about, you know, perhaps lobbing it over the wall or, or handing over control, that seems like something that you're going to get pushback on. It just seems like an idea that people are like, oh, we tried that and it didn't work because they tried a really crappy variation of it. Well, the, the thing to me that as I was reflecting on this was I don't know too many devs. I haven't worked with too many devs that have had much understanding of infrastructure. And in fact, I've had the opposite experience where, well, of course, my background is networking. So I have some really egregious examples there of devs doing very silly things because they did not take how a network operates into considerations when they wrote their code. Now, I would hope that the average dev would have a better handle on things like CPU management and memory and that kind of stuff because their code deals with those sorts of resources more directly, more intimately. So you would think or hope that there'd be some more insight that they would have there, but that doesn't mean that they're good operations or infrastructure people, does it? No. <laughs> I, I think you're being too optimistic, honestly. I think I'm not trying to like piss off any particular group in IT – but if your job is to develop software and build out features and burn down your sprint, like why 
would you care about things like CPU and whatnot when you could just push a button and get more infrastructure, more CPU, more resources on demand in most private or public cloud environments to a point, right? I mean, you have the Java developers that we all hate because they've written the worst UIs ever and where you can launch like the Cisco UCS manager. And for some reason it needs 30 gigs of RAM, you know, after running it for 10 minutes, you're like, okay, obviously these guys didn't give a crap about resource management, but it works, right? At the end of the day, it does allow you to do what you functionally have to or need to do. So I think there's a couple differences. Obviously, UI design is way different ballgame than server and application management, but they're in the same vein, right? There's no really care given to if it needs 10 gig or 1 gig or 500 meg or something like that. So I think resource management isn't top of mind when you're building out features. That's just where I sit in the stack anyways. There's another quote here by Tyler that stuck out to me. He says the old school Wild West style of operations needs to die. Ops is commonly the gatekeeper and they view themselves as such. Old school ops is building in as much process as possible, slowing down development so that when they reach production, the developers have a near perfectly reliable system. And I kind of identified with that. It's like, okay, we're going to stand up these servers. We're going to stand up the storage. We're going to stand up the network. We're going to put all the security parameters around. And then when we're really happy that this thing has been templated out to death and it meets all our specs and we've documented and everything, okay, dev guys, you can begin to install some applications on this system because we, we've we got that baseline and that foundation that we're very confident in. But that takes time, which I think is the argument here. You know, Tyler is making that. That's not – that sort of lead time and that sort of process is, is too intense for modern IT. At least that's, that was my interpretation of what he was saying. Yeah, and I, I would have to agree with Tyler there. I mean, from my background, I worked in a lot of like massive enterprise government data centers. And one of the big issues that we were facing was that basically bureaucracy and over-management of the ops side of things and of the infrastructure side was effectively killing ops. And it made us less forward-leaning and less innovative. And that was a big struggle for us. So how can we empower, right? So I guess it's the question would be, how can we empower the devs to be that point of escalation without compromising both sides, right? Because I guess the argument would be if they were the person that was ultimately responsible for having to come in and fix whatever the issue was at 2 a.m., would that make them more careful at the beginning, right? Talking about like the CPU and the memory management. Well, I mean, that that's not a new idea. I definitely have heard that one before where as bugs are discovered, if you make the developer who wrote that bit of code responsible for that code, then he or she are more likely to be careful about what they produce and what they release to production. So in in theory, yeah, but Chris, you already told me I was being too optimistic. Yeah. And there's a lot of that theory is outlined as, as practice in the Google SRE book, the site reliability engineering book. And they talk about error budgets and how the SREs work with the software developers. And, and that makes sense. But I actually wrote down some notes on this when I read that part because I'm like, the reality is most people, you know, we, we hit this a lot, are obviously not Google, but it's not Google from a scale or anything perspective. It's it's the management and culture, right? If you're already at a deficit and paying off massive technical debt and working your fingers to the bone trying to just put out fires and keep things going, you know, the lights on and your upper management team like doesn't really care, you're a cost center you know, that keeps email working, you know, keep the email working monkey and and cracking the whip on you. How the heck are you going to get out of that technical debt hole and start practicing any of these things? You know, it just, I feel like no matter what you choose, whether it's DevOps or new ops or, you know, no ops or any of those other fancy marketing terms, 
uh, unless you get the culture on board to say like we're going to fix this and actually assign resources, which is people and money to fix technical debt and fix the way that operations flows to dev and whatnot, it's all kind of moot. And, and I also kind of pin that as a problem that the vendor and the partner community needs to step up and help solve. Because if we keep, keep building these old clunky, disparate, you know, islands of IT that have to be cobbled together like artisanal cheese making, we're not going to have any of these things that new ops is just like, that would be nice, but I'm too busy racking this horrible piece of crap equipment. In fairness to Tyler, it wasn't like he, this was all one-sided towards dev and, you know, he, he was you know, just being super critical of ops people. It wasn't that at all because he, he mentions towards the end of the blog post, uh, I'll read you one more quote here. Development teams often hold ops responsible for being an innovation or delivery bottleneck. There needs to be empathy in both directions. It's easy to vilify ops, but oftentimes they are just trying to keep up. You can innovate without having to adopt every bleeding edge technology that hits Hacker News. Bravo. Yeah, he was criticizing the dev people too. Buy this guy a beer because uh, that's it exactly. You know, and ops typically is seen as this choke point of IT. But man, I would love for a lot of those folks to spend a week in the other person's shoes or it's just, it's just constant shoot uh, where you're underneath the shoot of just things being thrown on your head and you're just trying to dig yourself. It's kind of like when uh, Leia and Han and everybody go down the dumpster in episode four of Star Wars and they're just in the trash compactor and the walls are closing in on them. It's like that's the life of ops. And all we're trying to do is just keep the walls from collapsing in on all the garbage that we're having to maintain sometimes. I'm just remembering ticket systems and you, you look at your tickets at the beginning of the day and you're like, all right, I'm going to work on this one. I go work on this one and that and maybe I'll get to that other thing and that'll be my day. And two hours into your day, you've had eight more things come in and then you got summoned into a surprise meeting because your company just announced internally that they're going to do a takeover and okay, whatever, fine. I'll just, I'll work 24 hours. It'll be fine. Yeah, I that was definitely life. And you complain about headcount and the response was always, well, that's really hard to do. So, you know, what do we need to do to help you with your workload? You need to hire people, but we can't hire people. It's that whole thing. DDoS listeners, Ethan here. I'm sure you're aware that DDoS attacks are a normal part of life. You've probably been hit by one or you're going to be at some point in the future. And our sponsor, Encapsula, can protect you from those DDoS attacks, distributed denial of service, while also offering bot protection, website security, load balancing, a content distribution network, and it is all one easy-to-use service. And, and if you're missing what the point of this is, the big idea is to put Encapsula in front of your website so that your website is protected. Uh, your website will continue to deliver content even when bad things are happening. The thing here is that Encapsula is seeing all of your traffic anyway, so they're going to block that bad stuff, which is maybe the most important thing. But since they're seeing it all, they're going to accelerate that good stuff too. The bad stuff goes away. The good stuff gets even better. And if you think DDoS protection is no big deal, I personally think it's a really big deal. It's not hard these days for someone to build or even rent someone's command and control network and then unleash terror on your website, keeping your web down, offline. Encapture protects you from this sort of an attack because they have their own massive network, three terabit per second network with 30 data centers housing their packet scrubbers. And I love this little detail. They codename their packet scrubbers BMOF. Behemoth scrubbers can handle 500 million packets per second, and all of that put together means that putting Encapsula in front of your website means that you can withstand a DDoS attack. 
So to add Encapsula's capabilities to your website, visit Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. One more time, that's Encapsula.com slash PacketPushers and use promo code DATANOTS to get a 30-day free trial. So I was at the OpenStack Summit in Boston this past week. So this was the, uh, the second week of May. And uh, I spent some time in one of the keynote sessions and looking at what was going on. And uh, there was a demo that they ran on, I think, the, whatever. I think it was the Tuesday keynote. And it was a demo of uh, Cockroach DB. So, okay, it's another database. There's a million databases out there. But I hadn't heard about this, and the name was kind of conspicuous, you know, Cockroach DB. Who the heck would name their project Cockroach DB? Was my thought, you know. And I'm listening to this, and actually, the uh, I forgot his name, but one of the guys involved in the project from the beginning said that Cockroach DB is something that replicates itself and is very hard to kill. Thus, the name. So he committed to it early on, and now it's yeah, just yeah. He's not in marketing stuck. for sure. No, <laughs> I don't think so. But it's a typical open source kind of project. Anyway, so they were up on stage integrating it with OpenStack, bringing up nodes and standing up a CockroachDB cluster and then showing what happens when you kill a node and how the cluster converges and what's happening. He was talking about all those operations. And then this is where it got interesting. So they had this long table. I counted them. There were 15 different consoles all representing different clouds different styles of clouds, and they brought in 15 different operators representing each of these clouds, and they were all running the same code to, in their cloud, get it stood up, bring up a a CockroachDB node, and then join it to the CockroachDB cluster. And this was all happening live, you know, on on stage there in real time. And so they did that, and it was, by and large, pretty successful. Mark Collier was uh, walking up and down with a microphone. He was the COO at, uh, at OpenStack, assuming I got his name right there, and just talking to different folks about what stage they were in as they brought this thing up. So it was very kind of impressive, one of those things where there's so many moving parts, if you think about what's happening in the background, that uh, you wouldn't have expected this to work terribly well, and yet it was working quite well. And then I just like, well, what is CockroachDB? Why was this on stage at, you know, instead of MySQL or, you know, Cassandra or whatever else? up on stage that that, that might have been. And it was just kind of an interesting tool. I mean, it is truly open source. It gives you SQL, but it's designed also to be massively scalable. It's not just a SQL, although that's the primary way you would interface with it. There's also some NoSQL functionality built in there. And I just found it interesting, you know, as a as a tool and then things that database folks might actually be be interested in to explore because you can run it from a laptop right on to a, a full-blown cluster if you want. So good for development and so on. Chris, is this, have you heard of Cockroach Labs and CockroachDB? Yeah, actually, I've actually heard of it because I know some of our techie engineers here at Rubrik were looking at it as, as potentially another way to do uh, stateful data transfer among nodes. And the thing that caught my eye was um, we had a show earlier, I forget what particular number it was, where we discussed the CAP theorem. Or basically, you know, choose two, you get two out of three. Potentially, I think it was what Google's new database system potentially would, would solve that. It could potentially have all three tenets of the CAP theorem. Right. But CAP being the, 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 the premise being there's a trade-off. You've got consistency, availability, and performance. Pick two. It's like anything in life. You can only have two-thirds of what you want. So <laughs> unless you're Google and then you solve all three somehow. So with Cockroach, you lower the availability dial a peg or two. But now you get consistency and performance, you know, whereas with Cassandra, you might have a, a, the consistency is eventual rather than immediate. 
but it's it's highly available. So that that right, that is one of the cockroach design tenants. It is right strongly consistent as opposed to Cassandra's eventually consistent. So with cockroach, they're not going to serve up the answer to a question unless all nodes agree on what that answer is, would be a, a one way to put it. Whereas Cassandra is eventually consistent. So if there's an update somewhere, not every, all the other nodes might know about it just yet. Eventually, they'll be consistent and become aware of what the correct value is. But for a while, or in that transition period, you could get two different answers depending on which node answered your question and uh, what they thought the data was. Yeah, and so so when I read through that, I thought, all right, use case use case is obviously going to drive this because we've talked before about the use case of like airlines as an example. When you're trying to get data, you don't necessarily need consistency. You know, if you're trying to find airline tickets and seats on a plane, and it's global, and you're just kind of getting data, it's like, oh, it tells two different people that the seats are available. Well, when you go to actually to book, that's when to make sure the data is consistent, so that only one person can get the seat and assign the ticket and the record locator to the person. So therefore, you're, you're able to trade off the consistency because it doesn't really matter until you go to checkout. So it gives you tons of like read-only nodes that are eventually consistent globally that become consistent when there's a transaction actually executing, such as purchasing tickets. So I, I see folks like that that aren't interested in consistency going, okay, I'm not going to retool around this. At the same time, though, it seems like there's a lot of use cases where having that consistency is a huge benefit, especially if you can do it at a global scale that is, quote-unquote, tough to kill like a cockroach. <laughs> so to speak to the retooling, as I was reading up on this, I thought it was interesting that it is SQL. You, I think they say you can use PostgreSQL commands. It, it understands natively, no problem. So it is plausible that you could move from some other SQL database you've got into CockroachDB and not have to change some amount of your tooling that you're using to make it go, your query language and so on. So that was kind of an interesting design choice that they made on purpose just to make it easier for people to move over to the platform if they want. Because there, there's some, some people have criticized like, why are you SQL? Why aren't you NoSQL? Because there was a reason that NoSQL is a thing, the, the, the more freedom in the structure and, and queries and so on, as opposed to this you know, highly structured SQL database that puts certain constraints on how you manage the data. I don't want SQL. And then, then, so then they made the point, yeah, but so much of the world is SQL. So if you want this highly scalable performant database, you can get that and still be using SQL, which I, I thought was an interesting argument because other people have, like you brought up Cassandra, Chris, which is no SQL and designed by Facebook back in the day to get away from that and free them up from some of those constraints. Yeah, for me, like the, the more interesting concept was the idea that the with CockroachDB, it auto-scales and rebalances automatically with additional nodes, and it also automatically shrinks as you kill off nodes. And so you started talking about like the NoSQL approach you know, that, that we have with Cassandra and MongoDB. So it seems to me here that, that CockroachDB is really gunning for those DBAs who are more comfortable and familiar with the relational approach, right? More familiar with things like you know, the, the concepts of schemas and tables and columns and so on. And they're making that transition from something like SQL and Oracle off to something that, that provides more flexibility for them than the incumbents do. Yeah, I wanted to figure out with Cockroach what the NoSQL features were, but in all the docs that I did read through, I didn't come across that bit of data yet because they, they do highlight that, yes, there's some amount of NoSQL functionality that's available. But again, it is primarily a SQL database. To speak to the, uh, you, you mentioned, Rebecca, the rebalancing and so on. They actually showed that live. So as new nodes were joining the CockroachDB cluster on stage, you could see the rebalancing happening. 
right in real time. So it was it was a pretty bold demo because some of what happened in the OpenStack Summit demos didn't go so well. So this was kind of a big thing to have pulled off successfully. So, Hey, whenever you're doing a demo live, I mean, I got respect because it's, it's often not GA yet, you know, when you're demoing some new features, some pre-release and uh, conference internet usually sucks. So pour a little bit of liquor out for your homies that are uh, dropping some live demos at a tech conference because it's, it's nerve wracking. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, I did go to the OpenStack Summit in Boston and... Stop bragging. Uh, well, it was close. And, well, I didn't go for all four days. To be honest, I made a quick <laughs> showing one day and then I took a bus in the second day because traffic is so miserable getting in and out of Boston. You know, I live close-ish by close... I mean, like two hours from the city. So it's not like it's an easy thing for me to go do. But I, I got in there anyway and spent some time, talked to some folks and uh, and enjoyed that. But I really just wanted to get a sense of... What is happening with OpenStack? Because you don't hear much about it anymore. It seemed like two, three years ago, you couldn't turn around without getting some other article about OpenStack this, OpenStack that, some vendor making an announcement about our integration with OpenStack, and on and on it went, and then kind of like nothing. And then most of the news that you heard about it was negative. So HP Helion Cloud, we're shutting that down. It was based on OpenStack and... Intel pulling funding from a particular sort of a project they were involved with that had to do with OpenStack development and I forget, other bits and pieces, some businesses kind of falling to the wayside because they really couldn't get business going based on OpenStack, you know, little bits of news that you heard there. So it's And then just because there was such a negative kind of what little news there was seemed to be negative, I wanted to go to the show and just see what the sense was, what's really going on here. And what I walked away with was that OpenStack isn't dead at all. It's maturing instead. And it, it's kind of gotten boring as a result. This is, so it's there. People are using it. it. It's anything but dead. It's just it's just in that maturing stage. And so there's not a lot of exciting and shiny new things to go on. They're kind of polishing all the stuff that they've put together to make it more easily consumable. So I found an article on Major.io. This is Major Hayden. He, he writes an article back in February 2017, OpenStack isn't dead, it's boring, and that's a good thing. And he points out that lots of effort certainly poured into feature development, but there was a ton of work being done to keep the wheels from falling off entirely. That was back in the day, and it's kind of why, why there was a lot of news about it, right? You know, and then nowadays, he says the code and the development focus has been more on adding new integrations, improving reliability, increasing scale, all of which are useful, but not, you know, super exciting or like groundbreaking new features. It's kind of like just making it better. Well, we, we've totally seen this before. I mean, VMware was super cool and fun and exciting and everybody was on board the, the choo-choo train of cool. And now it's like it's a dot release and there's some new feature buried in there for some customer that needs it. You know, like I'm not ripping on VMware or OpenStack, but getting to a boring state, I would agree to the article, is just a, a maturity thing. You know, it's just part of the life cycle because you can only have that that wave of innovation, you know, the, or those multiple waves of innovation as the early adopters and the early majority ride that wave with you where the features just go like bananas and then you have them. And now it's like, OK, let's solve Because remember the original problems, like you couldn't upgrade OpenStack, you had to install a new one. Like that was an obvious like, well. That seemed to be the standard thing. Yeah, we're going yeah. to make a new pod that's got OpenStack and shift our workloads over to it, then yeah. nuke the old one. Yeah. Yeah, like that's that's not very enterprisey. I mean, I get it, but that was a challenge. And then there was also back to your earlier point, the investors into it being large, publicly traded, quarterly driven companies 
that made bets and they had the money to make bets on OpenStack early without really hurting themselves. You know, they can go at what platinum or gold level investment into the OpenStack community. And they're just not seeing the bets and the return ratios in, in the time frame that they wanted. And now they can do whatever they want. You know, like the, I wouldn't necessarily use Intel and HPE as a litmus test for the success of OpenStack. So just a couple of thoughts rambling around as you as you talked in the intro there. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Kind of funny when you talk about corporations of such a size that when they have multi-million or even billion dollar investments that it's like, well, it didn't work out. And that's okay. We're big. We can take it. Yeah, it's the early mover advantage, you know. They can try it out. But again, shareholders and folks that own the stock, you know, the board of directors are ultimately deciding the movement of the company. And OpenStack does take a while to mature. So just a few thoughts there. So a question I have for both of you, Rebecca, maybe start with you. As you deal with different folks in the community, how much uptake of OpenStack is there outside of the what I would consider the traditional OpenStack consumer, which tend to be large service providers, maybe very large enterprises or cloud providers that have some specific dev or multi-tenancy requirements, perhaps? For me personally, I, I've mostly seen it in the infrastructures that you just outlined. That's where I've seen it primarily. But it is kind of interesting because I'd say about a year ago, I had this, what is going on with OpenStack? I haven't heard anything kind of thought go through my head. And so I started attending my local OpenStack meetups in Los Angeles. And they're monthly, and I see I see a way bigger turnout for those than I do with like VMware user groups. They're just huge, and it's just a m- massive variety. So I mean, from my experience, it's been big service providers. But then when I go to these user groups, there there's people from every different industry. A lot of it was like entertainment industry down in Los Angeles is what I'm seeing a lot of at the user groups. Chris, what about you? You travel all over the place and show up at user groups frequently. Anybody talking about OpenStack? Yeah, I mean, you know, I just moved to Oakland, but I was in Austin for a while. So, like, Sparkly Collier, uh, Mark Collier, I think he's down there all the time because he's the COO of OpenStack Foundation. Uh, and a bunch of other folks, like uh, the RackN folks, read by um, frequent podcast friend Rob Hirschfeld. He lives down there as well. So I would attend the meetups and things like that. Mostly it was not necessarily people trying to deploy it because that was like the install and get it out off its feet stage that we went through years ago. We also have Rackspace really, really close to us. We actually meet in the Rackspace office. So like the, the one-on-one level questions are, are kind of done from the events that I went to. And it was more around the nuances. How does Kubernetes fit into this? How does some other container orchestration engine fit in with this? You know, what can I do as far as networking and storage for block and, and object and things like that? It was more beyond. Because remember, when OpenStack originally started permeating the enterprise, we'll say, a lot of it was just Swift usage for object store. You know, it was a really quick and dirty way to instantiate object store that was free. You know, it's open source object, yay. Or maybe they're using Cinder with uh, Nova or something like that. But it was it was kind of the, the three or four major core components to the project, not the whole thing where now it's Celiometer and Keystone and all the other stuff and Trove. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was uh, people going there to the meetups and talking about OpenStack and also talking about the work that they're doing with Hashimoto's company, uh, HashiCorp. Uh, so things like, I think we had a show where he was on talking about Nike using Trove as an example for like a secured key store. And that's plugging into various components within the OpenStack stack to be redundant. More ecosystem stuff, which again, it smacks of maturity, uh, which is awesome. But I don't see it in day-to-day like, oh, I'm looking to start up an OpenStack cluster. It's like, well, you're not going to roll your own anyways. So <laughs> why would you do that? That's horrible. 
And you mentioned Kubernetes, and that is complicating the story for OpenStack. That came up several times just in the the two days and the variety of people that I chatted with at the summit. So and the, the issue, if I can compartmentalize it, is this. If you've got Kubernetes as a container orchestration engine, if you've containerized all your workloads, what do you need OpenStack for is a question that some people are starting to ask, which is interesting. So that's one scenario that I think going forward as people get more and more involved with containers and putting their workloads into that container form factor and then using Kubernetes for that. Do they need OpenStack? Because what some people were telling me was, well, we use Kubernetes primarily, we like it, but OpenStack is still there for our virtual machines. And that's why we use OpenStack. You know, so we're kind of using them both side by side. That was something I heard a few different times. Another story that I heard was, and I think we might have even talked about this on the show before, Chris, was using Kubernetes as the foundation upon which OpenStack itself runs. So OpenStack is a whole bunch of services. You listed off a bunch of them just a minute ago. How do you make sure all those services stay up and running? Well, you containerize them and stick Kubernetes underneath as the engine to make sure all the OpenStack services stay up and running and they're doing what they're supposed to do. That's increasingly common from what I'm hearing in, in bigger shops that are that are doing this. So a slide that came up in multiple presentations was an architecture slide that showed Kubernetes at the bottom, running OpenStack on top, just like I described. And then on top of OpenStack, you've got multi-tenant environments being carved up where they, uh, on top of that OpenStack, that's on top of Kubernetes, would have their own Kubernetes and then, and then a, a, or maybe Mesosphere or something like that running on top of that. So you got this sandwich, if you will, Kubernetes, OpenStack, and then more Kubernetes or Mesosphere on top of that one set up for each tenant. So this incredibly complex layering of orchestration engines that I don't see a use case for, except for at very large cloud providers that would maybe want to do that, where they want to offer hosted private cloud to their customers, you know, that sort of a, of a thing. But I was just trying to imagine from an ops perspective, how in the heck do you manage a stack like that? You know, kind of blew my mind. <laughs> and it was pretty evident in some of the sessions that some of the vendors were kind of having their minds blown too because they were trying to address how their products would fit into such a scheme. We can address this problem and we can handle this and that. It's like, oh, God, that's a big deal. Yeah, and that's why I think projects like Digital Rebar as an example lives out in the world, you know, because it's like, how do I upgrade and manage and, and stream new versions and packages to my Docker and my Kubernetes and my OpenStack and all this other stuff. Like we talked earlier, all that cool stuff I saw on Hacker News that I'm deploying and now the ops guy is just in this, you know, he's got his waiters on going through the sewer of all this new technology that he has to babysit now. Uh, so projects like Rebar that it literally is like an abstraction layer that sits between those are efforts to fix that. Maybe not fix is the right word, but assuage the operational nightmare that it causes to deploy all of these technologies. It's one of those things where I'm wondering if it's because it's the first time I've ever thought of such a seemingly complicated deployment that it's intimidating, but that if you got into it and started living it, maybe it wouldn't be so bad, kind of like anything else that starts on the whiteboard and then you actually get into building it. It's, you know, if you have the opportunity to sit and build it, it's not, it's not so bad. The building is the easy part, right? It's 90% design, 10% deploy. (laughs) Oh man, I don't know. Clicking buttons is not the hard part. So a few more points that Mark Collier made in uh, in the keynote session that I, I sat in on. Um, he opened up that session and before it got into demo time and, and made a bunch of points. One of them, he said, complexity is a problem that's got to be overcome by, by the OpenStack community. The OpenStack project has got to be disciplined about making tools easier to consume and easier to use. 
I don't think I'm quoting him directly. I'm kind of compartmentalizing something he parked on for a while and really made a big deal about. But I mean, it was a very open acknowledgement that OpenStack is a difficult tool to consume and use, and it's complex, and that if it can be made simpler, that is going to encourage adoption, which I, I really think was his big point. You know, if you want to see this thing spread, make it easier for people to use the thing. And that is... <sighs> <laughs> it was kind of humorous watching some of the demos that came up because I was just smiling. <laughs> the command line arguments that you have to use to get something working, it's all, it's, I mean, those are details, right? You can sit and hammer through documentation, figure out what all the switches are, but it's just, you can see how things like this would be intimidating when you've got all these different services with a whole variety of different command line arguments and tables and lookups that you are using to figure out what the right pieces and parts are that you're trying to stitch together like attaching storage to a particular virtual machine, you know, something like that. That should be relatively straightforward is like a thing you got to think through to uh, to make that happen. I agree with that sentiment completely because there's a lot to be said about simplicity. When you were describing this this example, this diagram that you saw that had Kubernetes and OpenStack, the thought that kept running through my mind was, what is the level of effort to manage this day-to-day? Is that <laughs> the level of complexity really needed? Because for me, that would, that would, that would turn me off. Like I, I would look at this and be like, yeah, pass. And it really goes after the question of maturity. OpenStack services should be in and of themselves. That's something you would assume as table stakes. You would take for granted that, well, if I install this, Obviously, the services are going to stay up and running and be able to talk to one another. I shouldn't have to rely on yet another service just to make sure my OpenStack environment stays running. So I'm wondering if that's something that the OpenStack community will go after. To be fair, man, like all these CMPs, uh, the cloud management platforms, are not simple. Like from VMware's vRealize suite to OpenStack, I mean, they, they all require professional services or somebody to do it. So it's not like OpenStack is the unique snowflake in that world. I think the difference is that we all feel like because it's open and because there's so many contributors and every vendor just loves to beat their chest about how many lines of code they contribute to OpenStack, hey, maybe they could focus on making it a little more consumable. Like if you're trying to drive adoption through feature creep, you're doing it wrong. Make it simple and then add the features. Well, kind of related to that, another point that Mark Gallier brought up was uh, he, he wants to see he, – he wasn't addressing the OpenStack community specifically. He was addressing open source communities, plural, broadly. And he said the not invented here syndrome is something we got to kill. And he talked about how everybody out there in the open source community is building their own flavor of something that probably already exists in some other open source project. But because they didn't invent it, not invented here, we're going to go ahead and write it ourselves from the ground up with our own little twist on it that does something slightly different, which is something you do see a lot of all over the place. I mean, I, in networking, for example, there's been a running joke for years about all the different overlay protocols that are out there. You've got VXLAN and then someone, Microsoft, came along with NVGRE, which looks pretty much like VXLAN, and then they got another one called Geneve that's supposed to be the one to rule them all, and it's like, really, guys? Do we need to sit and make all of these different things? And you spend time in the IETF yeah. and listen to the meetings, and part of the discussion is just all this fragmentation across these different but yet very similar projects that do roughly the same thing, and trying to make sure they're all compatible and working. There's a lot of energy expended in the open source and standards bodies, communities, trying to wrestle all these things and integrate them and make them work when if maybe we just settled on one thing and could compromise on the one thing that's good enough, we could make some advances and bring some stability to code and so on. It sounds like you need a service as a service to manage your underlying services. <laughs> you do. 
Mark was obviously frustrated at this point. And he he brought up that Kubernetes has a block storage project, and he goes, "But why? OpenStack has had Cinder for years. Why did Kate need to go and do that?" So. Whether that was a great example or not, I I don't know. And it's got a catchier name, Cinder Block Storage. Yes, exactly, exactly. It wins the name game, which is the hardest part about open source, <laughs> naming your project. It is. CockroachDB. <laughs> uh, so it sounds like the point is, make it simpler, stop trying to reinvent the wheel, project management 101 kind of stuff, but that's... The beauty and the curse of open source, right? You're kind of being pulled along. It's kind of like whitewater rafting and trying to code at the same time. You know, you, you sort of choose where to go, but you sort of get chosen where you're going. So a little bit of both. And, and, and it underscores the point. I mean, the things that he was talking about in a keynote were, okay, we're growing up now, everyone. So we need to start acting like grown-ups. put our big boy pants on. Exactly. You're very much that. So again, all underscoring the point. I don't think OpenStack is dead. It's just maturing. It's just uh, it's just growing up. Hopefully, next releases, that's what we're going to see. Less new features and more, we fix this. It's more stable or it's more scalable or it's easier to use now or, you know, and, and maybe that's not exciting. But at the same time, maybe more people can load the project with and go, oh, this is immediately useful to me. This doesn't suck and get something done with it. That would be That would be a win for OpenStack. And then everyone will go to containers and move over to Kubernetes and... And that'll be that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's kind of interesting because they already have DevStack, which is a great example of how to make OpenStack simple to deploy. It's like, just uh, productize that. Just make that prod. That actually was a joke from the Summit platform. Something didn't work on the demo, and Mark kind of grabbed his mic and got this smirk on his face, and he goes, eh, it worked in DevStack. <laughs> it was priceless. Got a chuckle from the audience. Well, guys, why don't we wrap up this being the first ever found on the internet discussion and go around the table and tell folks how they can follow you. Rebecca, thanks for joining us for uh, your first ever Data Knots. And, and starting with you, are you social? Do you blog, tweet? How can people follow you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Fitzhugh. Well, that was very straightforward. Okay. We will. Oh, blog. Yeah, I guess, I guess there is a blog out there. Uh, it's technicloud.com. Ah, yes. I did stumble across your blog and read some entries, right? Yes. So yes, sorry. Very good. We, will, <laughs> we will link to those in the show notes. And uh, I am Ethan Banks, uh, EC Banks on Twitter, and my blog is EthanCBanks.com. You can digitally probe Chris at Chris Wall on Twitter, and his blog is WallNetwork.com. And I want all of you to know that I'm reading these show notes, and Chris is putting mean things to try to trip me up as we share this Google Doc for the show script. So for more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, nosedive down the rabbit hole that is PacketPushers.net. You'll find the Data Not's talking about containers, conferences, certifications, PowerShell, moving to cloud, full-stack engineering, storage architecture, and so very much more. And until then, may your server lights blink, your databases be consistent, and your cables be cleanly managed. Show me on the doll where Cockroach DB touched you. Yeah. All right. Found all my butts. I found all your butts, man. <laughs> <laughs>